I've lost count of the number of transatlantic flights I've made, and maybe you have as well. I don't know what your strategy is for traveling when there's such a great time gap and jet lag, but I've developed a strategy. You're free to use it if you'd like. Going east, I watch the first movie, I eat whatever the first meal is called, and then I put on those little eye protectors and I do not take it off. I do everything in my power to go to sleep. But coming back is a different story. It's the day that never ends. And there's no way to sleep, at least not for me. So my strategy is very simple. I watch movies. Did you know you can watch five movies between Israel and New Jersey? I've done it many times. Now, my strategy is a little more complicated than that because in between movies, I get up and walk around the cabin, you know, do a little stretching. I drink plenty of water and I wear compression socks, but mostly it's about the movies, except for this last time coming back from Israel. I watched a movie, I drank water, I wore the socks, but getting up was not going to be realistic. I was in the middle seat. What had God done to me? What had I done to deserve to be in the middle seat all the way back from Israel? Turns out it was a gift. I couldn't get up, but after watching the first movie, I struck up a conversation with the guy in the window seat. His name is Ellie, and he's a rabbi. He grew up in New York City, and technically he's not quite a rabbi yet because he is in rabbinic seminary in Israel. He was flying home to visit family, and for eight hours we talked Bible. I watched one movie, and then we just talked. We talked, of course, about stories in what we would call the Old Testament. He would call Hebrew Bible. And we even discussed a certain rabbi by the name of Jesus. But mostly, we got stuck in Genesis. We never got out of Genesis. And even in the emails since, we've never gotten out of Genesis. And I'm pretty sure, it's hard to recollect all of the conversation, I'm pretty sure it was Ellie who said, I gotta show you something in the Noah story. I bet you've never seen this. If you grew up going to church, and I know some of you did, there's a really good chance your parents deposited you in a nursery that was decorated with Noah's Ark as the theme. It must be the number one theme for nurseries. You know, smiling giraffes and hippopotamus going up the ramp and Noah standing there bearded just herding them onto the boat and the little kids sitting on the floor surrounded by this scene. But not all of us grew up going to church. And even if you did, it doesn't mean you remember the story. It does take four whole chapters of Genesis, which signals that while it might seem like a children's story, it must be pretty important to take up that much space. So I thought maybe just a kind of overview might help us remember it. It starts by one of the saddest lines in all of Scripture, God was sorry to have made creation. I mean, how sad is that? And so decides to wipe them out and to start over and calls this man named Noah along with his family to start it all over. He's, he's supposed to build an ark. He's supposed to bring the animals on two by two, male and female. 
and he does, and then it starts to rain. And you know the number, 40 days and 40 nights. It rains so hard that the water rises until the mountains are covered and that boat starts to float. When the rain finally stops and it comes to rest in the mountains of Ararat, some people are still looking for it, that's when Noah has to figure out, well, now, when's it safe to go out? So his strategy is pretty simple. He opens a window, he sends a bird out, and the kind of theory is, well, if it comes back, it must not have found a place to land. And sure enough, it comes back. He does this over and over, and with a dove, it comes back with an olive branch in its beak, which is still a symbol of peace in our day. And then after a little bit longer, they open it up, and they start creation anew. And God says, I'll put a rainbow in the sky, a sign that I'll never do that again. And that's the basics of the story. It, it should sound vaguely familiar. The Christian thinker Paul Ricoeur says, that's the place to start with Bible stories. You start with what he calls first naivete. You naively sit on the floor. You remember being a kid. You listen to the voice of some sweet Sunday school teacher. You imagine those pictures, and you just enter into the story. Unfortunately, some people's religious education starts and stops there. And so they dismiss it as adults. But Ricoeur says you have to move on to the next level. You know, we might decorate nurseries with this, but in adult classes, we usually decorate with coffee and donuts because we're adults and we have harder questions to ask. And Ricoeur calls that second stage, that second level of reading, raising critical consciousness. It just means asking hard questions like, um, was this story ever meant to be literal in the first place? There's pretty good evidence that it wasn't. I, I know some people who went to seminary and their education had taught them that every story in the Bible is literally true. And I remember one of them being shot down in class because when he said that, a friend of mine piped in and said, wait, you really believe this is literally true? God flooded the whole earth, built a boat big enough to hold dinosaurs and whales and lions and, and populate. You, you really believe that? Well, the truth is, whether you believe it's literally true or not, there are some troubling aspects to it. And it's okay to admit that. Like, for instance, many other cultures, one in particular that's fairly famous, had similar stories of floods on the earth, and none of them held it to be literally true. But even if you did, the story itself has some inconsistencies. If you ask most people, now how many of each animal was Noah supposed to bring? Everybody will say two, male and female, which is true in one part of the story, but in another part it says, well, of the kosher ones, you should bring seven pairs, and of the unkosher, you should bring only one pair. And if you read it in the Hebrew, there's some really big inconsistencies. That's raising critical consciousness, asking hard questions of the text. And some people's religi religious education stops there, which is rather unfortunate. My hunch is, this is just a hunch, but my hunch is there are some people who have given up on church because church was either stuck in first naivete or they were jaded in second naivete. And so they just gave up. Ah, a bunch of simple stories, or they haven't even analyzed it. 
That's why Ricoeur says you have to keep going. And the third stage, or the third way of reading, he calls second naivete. This is where you take the story seriously, even if not literally. What could it be saying to us, even if it's not literal? And just so happens, it says two big things. Like, you want to know how big? One's about the nature of humanity, and the other, the nature of God. I don't know if there are any bigger topics. So how would you describe people? What does the Bible say about people? What are they like? And what does the Bible say about God? What is God like? Those are pretty big. Not many kindergarten classes wrestling with that. It turns out that in the first category, it's pretty obvious. Humans are violent. God sees the violence and says, I, I'm sorry I made them. But humans are, are violent. I mean, you remember, no sooner has the first couple had the first kids and one of them kills the other. Now, brothers have been trying to kill each other ever since, but that's usually a little more figurative, you know, pillow fights or whatever. But this is murder. Brother kills brother, which in some ways symbolizes what every murder will be between siblings because we're all children of God. And it's senseless. See, some people read Bible stories and they think, well, there must be a moral then, right? Because these are kind of like Aesop's fables. So what's the moral? And some have said, well, it must be you should be righteous like Noah, except I wouldn't advise it. I wouldn't put my chips on that because you may not remember, but as soon as he gets out of the ark, he's drunk as a skunk. And sailors have been doing that ever since, right? Noah's not some perfect person. The Bible's stories are not exclamation points with, you better sit up and fly right. It's more like, it's more like they end with a period. You want to know what humans are like? Well, here they are, killing each other. That, that's people. Which brings us to the second category, the nature of God. What is God's response to the violence? And here, you should insert a Walmart in El Paso and a bar in Dayton, Ohio, and elementary schools, and Vegas concerts, and wars. Because God's response to the violence is, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's amazing. In fact, this was what Ellie couldn't wait to tell me. We're on the plane, we're flipping through, we've got our phones out instead of Bibles, and he goes, no, 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 you got to see this, you got to see this. If you flip to the beginning of the Noah story, this is what it says. God says, I'm going to wipe them out because they're always evil from their youth up. Then you flip over to the end of the story and it says, I'm never going to wipe them out because they're evil from their youth up. What? It, it makes sense at the beginning, but shouldn't it have said at the end, you know what? I'm never going to wipe them out because they finally learned their lesson. No, that's not what it says. I'm going to wipe them out. It's a big mistake. They're just evil. I'm not going to wipe them out. Yeah, they're evil. 
But what God does is look down on our violence and say, it breaks my heart, but I will not commit violence against you. Never again. And as a sign, puts the rainbow in the sky, right? And that's on the walls of the nurseries. Except that's not what the text says. It says a bow. The rainbow is supposed to symbolize a bow, as in a bow and arrow. But notice, it's aimed away from the earth. God is not looking down to punish and kill and destroy. Never, ever again. If you read the Noah story through all three stages, you figure out what humans are like. Yeah, we're an inconsistent bunch. And we can be violent. But if you keep reading, you, you, you already knew that. What we have to wrestle with is, so what is God like? How would you describe God? 